as we continue to consider the way our lives extend the realm of the kingdom of heaven, you're never going to guess what I want you to do. Imagine something. But first, you need to know some settings for the scenes to come. So, imagine first, however you imagine this, a Greco-Roman city of the first century. This one happens to be part of what we would call Lycaonia, now Turkey. And imagine this particular Roman city ringed all around by foothills. At the center of the city is a classic Roman marketplace. And at the center of this center is an enormous crowd of people gathered around three men. Now, stop imagining that. We'll get back to them in a minute. Because now imagine, again, however you happen to imagine this, the throne room of heaven. All the angels and saints, the the gold, the glory, the grandeur, and most importantly, the one at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, our friend, our brother. Oh, how he longs to come to grips with everyone. How he so desires that everyone, everywhere, would be ransomed by his already finished work. But for the purposes of what I'm about to ask you to imagine, let's picture him especially having his eyes upon those who are worshiping gods who are nothing. He is watching those people. And if we'll stop a minute to really think about the trajectory of their hearts, those people who are bringing their human spirits to honor, well, all they happen to know of. Oh, how Jesus wants to reroute their affections. How he wants to bring their desires unto truth. So friends, can you see that city in its center? And can you see Jesus there in the throne room? All right. Well, now, here is what I really want you to imagine. And this is from Acts 14, in case you're wondering where in the world we're going. Imagine this. Crowds of young, bright-eyed boys going forward as the vanguard of an enormous parade, rattling in their hands, glistening tambourines, and they're laughing with those lovely high soprano voices of theirs. Then, some younger priests following, stoic in their train. Behind them come the sacrificial bulls, snuffing and pawing, (laughs) shaking their big heads back and forth, seeming almost to sense that their end is near. The handlers of those bulls are handling them with quite obvious difficulty. Then next, behind the bulls, come the bearers of the ceremonial wreaths, heads held high, drinking in the esteem of the people of Lystra, who, by the way, are now coming out to them. And then finally come the priests and the high priest, echeloned in ascending order by their rank, wisdom, age, their eyes set forward. This whole procession 
arrives at the city walls, having descended from their temple in the hills, and they walk to the center point of the city. The eyes of those elder priests are swimming with tears. They are clearly fighting their emotions. Because here you see, right here in the center of their city, and this by the way, substantiated by the healing of a man born lame, and this accomplished in the sight of all those vast crowds of townspeople, have arrived, friends, have arrived two people who they believe are the personifications of Zeus and Hermes themselves. One heals, the other speaks. These priests have descended from Zeus's temple to prostrate themselves before their gods. They've waited for this day all their lives. All right, stop right there. Without going any further, without going right away into talking about Paul and Barnabas and their reaction to all of this, I wonder what are your reactions? As you imagine that, as I speak it to you, what are the observations that you see in this scene? And I want to remind you, not only in this scene, but also of Jesus as he looks on. Well, what happens next? I want you to listen to Acts 14, this is 11 through 18, which backs us up just a little because I want you to hear it all together. When the crowd saw how Paul healed the man born lame, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. They began to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. What is more... The high priests of Zeus, whose temple was near the gateway of the city, brought garlanded oxen to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the people. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of their intentions, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd, crying at the top of their voices, Men! Men! Why are you doing these things? We are only human beings with feelings just like yours. We are here to tell you good news, that you should turn from these meaningless things to the living God. He is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. In generations gone by, he allowed all nations to go on in their own ways, not that he left men without evidence of himself, for he has shown kindnesses to you. He has sent you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, giving you food and happiness to your heart's content. Yet even with these words, they only just succeeded in restraining the crowd from making sacrifices to them. So my friends, my listeners, now that I've given you all of it, including my imagined kind of context within it with those priests of Zeus, I put this to you. As followers of Jesus who are attempting day by day to extend the realm of the kingdom of heaven as far as we can take it, well, again, what 
are your observations as you listen now to the whole scene. I wonder what you're noticing. I wonder what especially strikes you. Because I'll tell you what's been hitting me all week this week. This is a contest of uncontested devotion. Paul and Barnabas, following Jesus with everything they are, are meeting up with adherents to the Greco-Roman pantheon who are following their gods with, frankly, everything they are. Two types of people categorically going about their spiritual lives with everything they've got coming into, in this moment, direct contact. So let me make an observation. And I would love for you, kind of in a pondering, quiet sort of way, to go on this journey with me. I think, unknowingly, unconsciously, truly, without meaning to do so, you and I can often fall into all kinds of false worships. I think, not terribly dissimilarly to the Roman people of old, you and I might have some, let's call them pet gods, that arise out of our let's call, daily practicalities or out of the cultural atmospheres in which we live and to whom we are giving at times some of our devotion. I wonder what you're thinking of as you hear me say that. I was walking with a friend day before yesterday telling him about this idea, this talk, and we were just walking down Pine Grove Avenue near our house. And I was reminding him that back in the days of the Greeks and the Romans, they sort of had gods for everything. So they would have seen that pine tree we just walked by and said, ah, there must be a god called Pineus, who is the god of that pine tree and all groves of pine trees. Well, you and I can laugh at that. But then in our day by day, I think we do a little of the same. We get roped into, well, the innate consumerism all around us, the rank materialism that sometimes is the way we denominate our lives. Or, let's touch a real hot button. We start to think that these political figures who are using the name of Jesus back at us somehow are allies of him, regardless of knowing nothing about them. We think a political party might be it. We think a particular, let's be kind of humorous about it, a, a sports team, but whatever it would be that has got a hold of our hearts even incrementally and is drawing us in a direction either away from Jesus or to ally Jesus with that particular construct. Well, friends, do we have any of those? Because I truly don't believe that the world's reactions against Jesus and the church are a reaction to our being too enamored with Jesus. I don't think that. I actually believe most of the flack we're taking, most of the world's negative reactions against Jesus and his church are because we are not about Jesus and his way enough. Or I'll put it to you this way. It is powerful when purporting to follow a savior who lived, died, and yet lives, we actually act like we're living in constant alive communion with him. He's everything. A complete devotion to a living God who is a friend, a friend who is God. Yes, that will turn, tend to turn the heads of some people. 
But there might be nothing more powerless than saying we believe all that and then quietly worshiping the same false gods as everyone else. When our belief becomes simply beliefs, like nice ideas about Jesus that we can pick up or set down, well, that doesn't feel like Paul and Barnabas and Lystra, does it? I think more people than you know actually want what the kingdom offers, but they just want to see it lived. They don't want to look at another competing ideology. They want to see the proof that this God of ours is actually alive. Well, my dear friends, you and I are the proof. Our daily lives, well, those are who we are. So my prayer for you and I for this week is that considering any false worships we might have been falling into, we give them over to him and then follow only him all the way, every day. Thanks so much for listening.